0: Let's go ahead and open in a word of prayer. We really have a lot to cover today, so um, let's get started. Heavenly Father, we come before you. Lord, in awe of you, as we hear you declare your character in your word, you are Yahweh and there is no other. You are God and there is no other. Father, you are the creator, you are the sustainer. And Jesus Christ, your Son, is our Savior, our Redeemer. So, Lord, as we read your declaration this week of yourself in your Word, as we see about your faithfulness to Israel, Lord, as you remind them and you remind us not to fear, Lord, I pray we would hear with a heart to obey. Lord, you would use your Word in our lives to conform us to the image of your Son for your glory. We pray this in His name. Amen. So, any of you guys pay attention to what's going on in the news? Yeah. Well, it, in, in, unless you've like been in some coma or something for the last week, you know that there's been an attack on Israel and there's an ongoing war right now in Israel. Right? And... Uh, As Christians, we cannot look at what's going on in Israel and not think about it from a biblical perspective, right? As we look at the very words we're going to read today in Isaiah, we understand that they apply to what is going on in Israel at this very moment, right? None of this is a shock to believers, We understand, and we talked about this last week when I talked about God's faithfulness to Israel stands as a testimony to the reliability of the Bible. Do you understand no ethnic group in history on this planet has been so universally persecuted as the Jews? Right? I mean, uh, yes, Isaac and Ishmael and the Arabs hate the Jews, and by the way, they do. You need to understand, even though they may, for practical reasons, withhold their support and direct invasion of Israel, um, after 9-11 I was um, in the desert and I was meeting with some extremely high-level government officials, and uh, one of them, in a moment of unparalleled frankness, told me, I mean, this is, this is one of the most senior officials in the government of this country. And he told me that if he could, he would drive every last man, woman, and child from Israel into the ocean, and he would love to watch them all drown, and he'd kill every one of them. Then he said, oh, but, but we understand they're an ally of the United States, and we wouldn't do that. But the only thing that restrains them is the fact that we're an ally of the United States and they're practical and they understand if they tried to do that, it wouldn't go so well for them. The point is simply this. Satan, this, this isn't about Hamas. It's not about Hezbollah. It's not about anybody else. It is about Satan and his desire to demonstrate that God will not fulfill his faithful promises to Israel. And you may say, Art, how how can you know that? How would you make a statement like that? Because I've read the book of Revelation, and the whole point of the book of Revelation is about the purification of Israel, and the whole effort of Antichrist is to kill every last Jew. Read the book. And in the end, they're about to be successful. They've already killed two-thirds of every living Jew on the planet. Two-thirds. Only got one-third left to kill, and they're about to kill them, and they've got the armies of the entire world mass against one-third of the surviving Jews. How do you think that's going to turn out? They have 200 million demons part of this. How do you think that's going to turn out? Well, if you were to look at it, you'd think probably not so good. These guys aren't warriors that are trying to survive. But they're going to repent, and we're going to read about that, oh, let's say in the book of Isaiah. And they will plead for their Messiah to come after they repent, after they realize that Jesus was the Messiah And they will repent, and they'll plead for him to come back, and guess what? He will. And Israel, the last third, will not be able to defend against the armies of all the nations under the Antichrist. But when Jesus shows up, he'll be able to destroy him, and he will. So my point is simply this. Pray for Israel. They are God's chosen people. In the Abrahamic covenant, It says, God will bless those who bless you and God will curse those who curse you. And throughout the history of the world, this is exactly what we see happening. Right? We are in Isaiah and Assyria attacked Israel and what did God do to Assyria? He destroyed them. We're reading in these chapters now that about a hundred years after that, Babylon is going to take Israel into captivity. And they do. And what does God do to Babylon? He destroys them. And he uses the Persian Empire to do that. And they are the ones who free Israel and let them go back into the land and even help them rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. But then we have other invaders. right? We have people like Antiochus Epiphanes, we have other invaders, we have the Roman Empire, and Jesus reminds us in what's called the Olivet Discourse that because they reject their Messiah, God is going to judge them in 70 years, and God does that in 70 AD, not in 70 years, but Jesus promises judgment He promises the destruction of the temple, and he promises the scattering of the Jews, and that's exactly what happened about 40 years later in 70 AD. When Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple is permanently destroyed, just as it is today, and the Jews are scattered throughout the whole world. And then what happens to them when they're scattered throughout the whole world? Oh, I don't know, like the Holocaust? like what the Russians did to them. They have been persecuted everywhere they go. They are being persecuted in the United States. Right? I saw uh, a university, a protest, at a university in the Bible Belt, where the chant was, We are Hamas. We are Hamas. Well, my thought was, then you should all be arrested. It's a terrorist organization. My point is we pray for Israel, and we understand God is not off the throne. This is all part of the very plan we are about to study. We look at this as Christians, and we think biblically. Ultimately, is Hamas going to kill all the Jews? I don't think so. Pretty sure not. I've read the book. I've read the end of the book. I know how the story turns out, right? And we are going to talk about that today. And today, you are going to see how the story turns out because God's going to tell us, right? So there you go. That was all introduction. I didn't even get to the introduction. That was pre-introduction introduction. But I just really felt I had to address what's going on. So last week, we looked at chapter 43, And we saw God's unchanging faithfulness in the first seven verses. We saw about God's declaration of who he is, and he he will be faithful based on his character. God is faithful. He formed Israel. He knows them by name. And he will be faithful to his promises. We saw the results of that is going to be a regathering of Israel in the Millennial Kingdom. And if you remember, and it applies to what's going on today, there are going to be two regatherings of Israel, right? I showed you the first one. Um, he in, in, um, There's going to be a gathering of Israel in unbelief. That's in Ezekiel 20, verses 33 through 38 where God says, I will enter into judgment with you face to face, Israel. I'm going I'm to regather you so that I may enter into judgment with you. What is that judgment going to be? That's going to be what we call the tribulation. Israel is suffering today. The atrocities that happened are unspeakable. Unspeakable, but not unprecedented. Unprecedented. When I was in the desert right after 9-11, and we were doing that operation in Afghanistan, we would get what we call the daily atrocity report. And we would hear about such horrific things that you almost could not stomach them. And by the way, the people listening are hardened guys. These are soft guys. These are all military guys. And we almost couldn't take it. Right? Unspeakable. But we understand that God will enter into judgment with them, and He will do that to purify them. And then we understand there's going to be another regathering, according to Jeremiah 23 verse 8, a gathering in faithfulness. He's going to bring Israel all together, and will regenerate every last one of them. He is going to apply the new covenant. And he is going to take the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. He's going to pour out his Holy Spirit. And all Israel, according to Romans, will be saved. And when I say all Israel, what do I mean? I mean all. We talked about God's sovereignty, and that's kind of where we finished off, 43 verses 8 through 13. We said God calls like a court. He's going to call witnesses, and he's going to call Israel to be his witness. And Israel will testify, and that's where we finish on your notes from last week, where it says Israel testifies of his greatness. Israel, God is calling Israel to testify to the nations because they have witnessed what he has done. Psalm 96, verse 2 and 3. Verse 3, it says, recount his glory among the nations and his wondrous deeds among the people. That's what God is telling Israel to do. They are to be a witness to the world. Jesus says this in Acts one eight, speaking to his disciples and through them to us. He says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and even to the end of the earth. God called Israel to be a witness to the nations, and he has now called us to be a witness to his nations. That's what God's chosen people do. right? And we read earlier in chapter 43 where God emphasizes, I chose you, I gave you a name, you are my chosen people but now God has called another people. He hasn't disregarded Israel, but now he's called another group of people. And who is that? That's the church. That's Gentiles. Okay, that's us. And once again, look at verse 13, where God claims his own sovereignty. And I'm working off of last week's notes, because we didn't finish. 43 verse 13, Even from eternity, I am He. There is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? What's the answer to that question? Nobody. God has not deserted Israel. God is entering into judgment with them, and this is just the precursor, right? These are what Jesus called the birth pangs. And by the way, read the Olivet Discourse. We're going to get a a quote from it later today if we get there. right? But in there, Jesus says, look, you need to pay attention to the signs, and I'm going to give you some of the signs. There's going to be wars, rumors of war, earthquakes, all this other stuff. And Jesus says, that's not the end, but but those are the signs. Those are the birth pangs. Look around, in fact, Lorraine and I were just this morning sitting there and oh, guess what? There's another earthquake in Afghanistan and there's another earthquake here. You know, I, I did some research on this. You know, there are hundreds and hundreds of earthquakes every year in the world. And since they've been tracking it, the number's been going up exponentially. Huh, must be global warming. I don't really believe that. And then, in verses fourteen through seventeen of Isaiah forty-three, God is going to chasten Babylon. He says, "Once again, I'm sorry." We see God mention Babylon. God is—he is chastening Israel through Babylon. I misspoke. At a human level, Babylon was nothing more than a pagan nation that cared only for its self-advancement. But the Bible shows us that God had a special purpose for using Babylon to fulfill his purposes. The message for Israel is that God is always in control, even in the midst of invasion and exile. And for this reason, Israel must not fear. That was true back in 700 B.C.? It is true in 2023 A.D. It's true for his chosen people, Israel, and it's true for his chosen people, the church. Let me just read verses 14 through 17. Thus says Yahweh your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I have sent Babylon. I will bring down those who fled, all of them, even the Chaldeans, into ships in which they shouted for joy. I am Yahweh, the Holy One, the creator of Israel, your king. Thus says Yahweh, who makes a way through the sea and a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and the horse, right? God brings forth the chariot and the horse. The military force and the mighty man, they will lay down together and will not rise again. They have been extinguished and quenched like a wick. God's purpose for Babylon, as we see here, was sent for their own sake. Now, if you're a Jew in 600 BC, 100 years after this prophecy is made, you're going to sit there and go, I'm not exactly seeing how this is for my good. If you're one of Daniel's friends who's taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar, you're not exactly seeing how this is for your good. But God does not promise we will always understand every single thing he does and why God promises he is using that for our good. And he is using it for Israel's good because he will be faithful. Babylon was sent for Judas' sake. But notices he promises it will not be permanent. Judah, you are going to go through a trial, but it will not be permanent. It's probably best to see that Isaiah was not only, um, was the exile for Israel's good, but it was also that Babylon herself will fall. And then God affirms his own personhood. He is the Holy One of Israel. He's their creator. He's their king. And therefore, their enemies will ultimately be overthrown. God will ultimately overthrow Babylon. God will ultimately overthrow the nations that are Israel's enemies today. And we see in the book of Revelation that when Antichrist unites the entire world against Israel, God is still their creator He is still God who is sovereign. He's the Holy One of Israel. And He is, it says, their Redeemer. And He will be faithful. Okay, let's not forget that. His promise of restoration we see in verses 18 through 28. Let me just read this. Listen to it. Turn to this passage if you haven't. Isaiah 43, verse 18. Do not remember the former things nor carefully consider things of the past. Behold! Pay attention! I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. You will not know it. I will even make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the wasteland. The beasts of the field will glorify me, the jackals and the ostriches because I have given waters in the wilderness and rivers in the wasteland to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed myself will recount my praise. Yet you have not called me, O Jacob, but you have become weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought to me the sheep of your burnt offerings, nor have you glorified me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings, nor wearied you with frankincense. That's, their, that's Judah speaking. You have not brought me sweet cane with money. You have not satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. Rather, you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my sake, I will not remember your sins. Bring me to remembrance. Let us enter enter into judgment together. Recount your cause that you might be proved right. Your first father sinned and your spokesmen have transgressed against me. So I will profane the princes in the sanctuary. I will give to Jacob to be devoted to destruction, and Israel to revilement. We see two things here. God says, ultimately, I am your Redeemer, and I am going to deliver you. But in the meantime, Israel, you have rejected me. God promises a new work for his people. And it says, if you'll notice, this is something they're not even going to know. They're not going to get it. They're not going to understand until it happens. He promises to do something new. Twice God tells Israel to stop reflecting on the past. Right, Even though what he did in the past was great and wonderful, it pales into comparison to what he's about to do. God's new work is going to spring forth. It's going to be something they cannot miss. The reason for the transformation is God is going to pour out rivers in the desert. He's going to pour out, the, the wilderness will no longer be the wilderness. The imagery here of the water is symbolic, right? God is going to pour out living waters on Israel. Even the animals will praise God. Now, I've never seen an ostrich do that. Have you? I've been to zoos. I always thought they were really bizarre and odd creatures. Right, you ever seen one up close? They're kind of weird, but they will sing praises to God. Isaiah 65, verse 19, which we'll get to in some time, says this I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be joyful in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the voice of crying. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fulfill his days. For a youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. In Isaiah 55, it says, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you have no many, come buy and eat. Right? He is offering his salvation free to Israel. And one day it says, Jerusalem will rejoice. Right? Jerusalem will rejoice. What is he speaking of here? This promise we see in Isaiah 43 refers to what period? Come on, US catalogical wonders. The millennial kingdom. It's certainly not that way today, is it? No, but it will be. Look at Jeremiah 31 31 through 34. That is the new covenant. That is what is going to be the new thing that is going to happen to Israel. By the way, that new thing has already happened in the church. Right? How how did you get saved? You got saved because of the new covenant. Here's what happened to you. What happened to you is, um, let me get there. God put his law within you and on your heart he wrote it and he will be your God and you will know God, you will know Yahweh and he will forgive your iniquity and he will remember your sin no more and that is applied to you through the blood of Jesus Christ. But that's eventually going to be applied to him. It says in verses 22 through 24, they won't turn to him. They won't turn to him, and therefore God is going to enter judgment with them to purify them. He is going to refine them like silver. He is going to remove the dross. You can look at Micah 6.3, and you can look at Malachi 1.13. They all say that. And I want you to notice that by his own righteousness he's going to save Israel that's in verses twenty five through twenty eight Only God can wipe away sin. you understand that you cannot do anything to assuage God's wrath against your sin when you' share sure the gospel that that is key to the gospel right there is nothing that you can do that God needs that will assuage his wrath for for your sin because he is an utterly holy god and we are utterly depraved people and there isn't enough mother Teresa; nobody else can do enough righteous things that god's wrath against your sin will be assuaged you will spend eternity in hell the only person who could pay the eternal penalty for your sin was christ on the cross and you understand that right when he suffered on the cross he bore an eternal wrath, right? Eternal wrath for just me, right? Because if I hadn't put my faith in him, which really he did, he gave me the faith, right? If I, if I hadn't been saved by God and I was in hell, how long am I going to be in hell to, to assuage God's wrath against me? Eternity, forever, Because it's eternal wrath, right? But Jesus bore eternal wrath on the cross for me and for you, and he will one day do that for Israel. Okay, that's last week. So we're more than halfway through and we finished last week. Okay. Let me just... Let me explain briefly kind of how I look at teaching this class, just so you guys don't get excited. When I lay out a lesson, it's kind of my intent to get through that lesson, but I used to have a, a calculus instructor at the academy, Integral Calculus. By the way, if you ever had a chance to take that class, don't, okay? It's all a mystery to me totally a mystery and he would say and he'd get up in that class and he'd say here's what we're going to do today and he'd write all that stuff down we had our books we're going to cover all this stuff and I'm like holy cow I don't even understand the first thing but okay and we never ever ever once I think got through what he said we were going to do so just think of me as that professor from the academy and you'll understand it is my desire to get through it but here's the deal The goal isn't finishing stuff. The goal is understanding and and beholding God in the Word, right? That's the goal. So so I don't get any extra elder pay for finishing early or anything. But but there's so much here that we can't miss, okay? Mm -hmm. This material, I mean, are you guys not overwhelmed by what you're seeing? How many times has God said, I am the Holy One, I am. I am from the beginning. I mean, how many times is God going to say that? Well, he's going to say it some more. Why do you think God's doing that? Why would God... There you go. God is telling you that he is utterly amazing and he repeats it and repeats it and repeats it because we aren't amazed enough. Right? We all say at this church we have a high view of God. And I believe you when you say that. I believe I have a high view of God. But when I read these passages, I understand it. It's not where it's supposed to be. I don't have a high enough view of God. I don't think I will till I see Him face to face. Therefore, God is going to say it over and over and over again. He's saying it to His chosen people, Israel. And he's saying it to his chosen people, the church. So the theme continues. God is once again reminding Israel of who he is and what he will do. You know, and as I was thinking through this, and as I always do this, there's things I want to put in the introduction. And how many of you have read the book of Job, the whole book? Right? Most of you. Good. Right? And in the beginning of the book, Job is acting very admirably. And his friends come up, and they make the accusation that God is only punishing you because you're unrighteous. right? And Job defends himself and goes, no, I'm not. I'm not like that. And Job is telling the truth. But what's Job's one failure? What's the one thing Job did wrong? Why me? I'm not unrighteous like you said. I'm not that. God, why are you doing this to me? Right? I live in Church, Texas. Come on, why would this happen to me? I go to Believer's Fellowship. This shouldn't be happening to me. Right? And that is Job's sin. So you get this argument going on until we get to chapter 38. And that 30, in chapter 38, God's now going to enter the discussion. And he's going to talk to Job. And he's going to answer Job's question, Why me? Right? When we think of our own suffering and our own trials and tribulations, you may be tempted to ask, How come me? Well, let me read you God's answer to Job, and I would say it applies to you. And I'm going to, by the way, God's answer goes on for like four chapters. He is going to beat Job pillar to post, as MacArthur once said. He's going to beat Job. He is going to slap Job around until at the end Job is cowering down and he goes, Lord, I repent in dust and ashes. Right? He's going to repent in dust and ashes. He goes, you know, before I I thought I knew you, but I didn't know you. Now I see you and, and now I repent. So here's the beginning of God's answer to Job. How come him? Why Job? Verse 1, then Yahweh answered Job out of the world when it said, Who is this who darkens counsel by my words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, Job, and I will ask you and you will make me know. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, or if you know understanding. Who set it's measurements? since you know? Who stretched a line out on it? Or where were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, Job, answer me. What's Job's obvious answer? Uh, God is answering. Basically, God's answer to Job is, how dare you question me? God is asserting who he is. And how dare you ask me about integral calculus, right? That's a metaphor. Psalm 113, verse 5, Who is like Yahweh our God, the one who sits on high? And high? And today, we're going to see in verse 7, Who is like me? Let him call out and declare it. And let him tell it to me in order. From the time that I established the ancient people, and let them declare to them the things that are going, that are to come and the events that are going to take place. See, the theme continues, God asserts that he is God. Right? He is God. And then his promises are based on his character. God reminds us that His promises are never based on what we do. They are based on who He is, and He will never betray His chosen ones. Never. So the good news is it's not based on how good you are, it's based on His character and His faithfulness. And that's the message to Job. That's the message to Isaiah and to Judah and to Israel, and it's the message to His church. Nextly, we're going to see God's going to demonstrate the foolish of trusting in anything but Him. Now He's going to talk about making idols. right? I'm, I'm trusting. most of you folks have never done that. I hope. right? And if you have, you've repented. Right you've never taken a piece of wood or silver and made it into an image and then bowed down before it and said deliver me. Right? But let us not be so smug. Right? We may not do that, but we often trust in things other than him. Psalm 41 verse 1 but the wicked says in his heart there is no god. They act corruptly, they commit abominable deeds. There is no one who does good, huh? Isaiah fifty. I'm sorry. Psalm fifty-three, verse one. The wicked fool says in his heart, "There is no God," and they act corruptly and commit abominable injustice. And there is no one who does good. We read that phrase: "There is no one that does good." I didn't accidentally reprint that twice. That's in the text twice. Get the idea? What God is saying here is. Don't trust in anything but Him. right? Fools say there is no God, but they're going to worship something. You need to understand this. There is nobody in the world, in our culture, I don't care how atheistic they say they are, who does not worship some God, and that God may very well be Himself. But He worships. And we need to understand that love of idols is spiritual adultery. That was true of the little wooden idols they bound out to, and it's true of the idols in your heart. Hosea 3 verse 1 says this, Then Yahweh said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her companion and is an adulteress, as even Yahweh loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other God and love raisin cakes. They turn to other gods. They are adulterers. In chapter 9, verse 1 of the same book, he says, Do not be glad, O Israel, with rejoicing like the peoples. For you have played the harlot forsaking your God. You have loved harlots earning earning on every threshing floor. They loved harlots. They are harlots. They are adulterers because they love something other than him. You may go, oh, yeah, that's Old Testament stuff, that's Israel. Well, let me read you a New Testament thing. Maybe it ain't all just Israel. James says this in chapter 4, verse 4. You adulteresses. Huh. Same phrase, right? God accused Israel of idolatry and adultery. James says to the church, to believers, you adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility to God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world sets himself as an enemy of God. Oops. He's saying that to us. Not Israel. So let's get into into the text and we'll see how far we get. The bottom line is eventually we'll finish the book. Okay? And I'm thinking, to be honest, probably... February-ish. We're actually going faster than I thought we would. All right. Yeah, yeah, you can laugh. But I thought we would be in the book about a year and a half. We're not. So, All right. Let me, let me start in verse, chapter 44 now. We're in your notes that I passed out. I'm going to start in verse 1. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen... Thus says Yahweh, who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshuan, whom I have chosen. For I will pour out water on the thirsty ground and streams on the dry land. I will pour out my spirit on you and my blessing on your offspring and they shall spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. This one will say, I am Yahweh's. And this one will call on the name of Jacob. And this one will write out his hand, belonging to Yahweh, and will name Israel's name with honor. Wow, what a promise. He's going to tell Jacob, He's going to tell Israel that because of who I am, you should not fear because I know the end of the story. You're going to go through some trials, but I know the end of the story, and you don't. Let's take a look at these verses, break them down. First of all, God's command is not to fear. Look at verses 1 and 2. First of all, he reminds them that he chose Israel right? He says right there, whom I have what? Chosen. Did Israel choose God? No, God chose Israel. Psalm 135, verse 4, for Yah has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his treasured possession. By the way, does that phrase remind you of a song? Right? I just thought it Reminded me of he will hold me fast. But I already did that, so I'm not doing it again. Secondly, notice that God formed Israel. They are his children. Did you see it there? Um, He says, my servant who I have formed you from the womb. He's using the analogy of birth. You're my son. I'm the one who formed you. They are formed from the womb. And notice as he refers to Jacob as Jeshuan, that is an honored name for Israel whose root means meaning is right or straight, in contrast to the root for Jacob, which means overreacher or deceiver. In other words, he is using a, a cherished, honored, sweet name to describe them. You can see this word in in Deuteronomy 32, verse 15, but Jeshuan grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, thick and sleek. Then he abandoned God who he made, and he treated the rock of his salvation with wickedness and foolishness. He's talking about Jacob. Isaiah 49, we're going to see this. So now says Yahweh, who formed you from the womb to be his servant. Right? God formed them. By the way, how did God form the church? Same way, right? We are his chosen people. He calls us his what? Bride and his children. Right? We are children. We are heirs. So why should Israel not fear? Well, first of all, He talks about his saving work in Israel. He's going to save them all. Water, again, is used as a metaphor for blessing in the Holy Spirit. God is going to pour out his grace like rivers in a desert. Very dramatic scene. Right? This water. By the way, these waters in the desert, does that make anybody think about anything in the New Testament? Besides the Getty Song, Living Waters? Right, That is one of my favorite Getty hymns, by the way. But does it it make anybody think about, oh, I don't know, John chapter 4? Stan did. Let me read John chapter 4, starting in verse 13. And you're going to see the same kind of words, but you're going to get a little bit more definition to them. Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman, right? And they're at a well. and and he asks her for some water, and he says, yeah, if, if you knew who I was, well, let's pick up the conversation. Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst, ever. But the water that I will give him will become in him a wellspring of water springing up to eternal life. What is the water Jesus is talking about? It's living water. It is salvation. It is the Holy Spirit. He is going to give you living water. By the way, if you hang in there, at the end of the book of Revelation, we're going to see the exact same kind of language. Right? God uses it here in Isaiah to say, do not fear, I'm going to give you new water, I'm going to make the deserts filled with water, and I'm going to pour out my Holy Spirit on you. See it there? God will pour out his Holy Spirit. This was, by the way, being fulfilled at the end of the tribulation when Christ comes again, and he will regenerate. All Israel. We see in the new covenant that he is gonna pour out his spirit just like he did on the church at Pentecost. Just like he did the moment you were saved. Right? How much of the Holy Spirit do you have? All of it, right? You don't get any more Holy Spirit. You don't have some. I got a little Holy Spirit. He's got some more. All right? there, by the way, that is a charismatic thing. Right you need some more Holy Spirit. That is blasphemous. That is horrible. right? Now, how can we all have all of the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit is God, and he's everywhere, and he's omniscient and he's omnipresent, right? And that's how, and you want me to explain that? I can't, right? You get the idea, though. Let me read Romans 11, just as a reminder. In Romans 11, starting in verse 25, Paul, God says to Paul the Apostle, and this applies, to, by the way, to today in the headlines. He says, For I do not want you brothers to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. He's saying, Gentiles... Don't think that you're so hot and God has abandoned Israel. Don't get arrogant, Gentiles, because you've got the Spirit. God has poured the new covenant out on you, but he hasn't poured it out on Israel yet. Don't get arrogant. That's what he's saying. Now let me continue. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. We are in a period called the age of the Gentiles. Paul says it here is the fullness of the Gentiles. God is doing a work where before he worked primarily through Israel, now through Jesus and the church, God is going to reach all the Gentiles. And you're all sitting in this room as testimony to God's faithfulness in doing that, right? And that's partially because Israel has been hardened. See it? It says it right there. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles is done. And then when the fullness of the Gentiles is done, guess what God's going to do to all those Gentile Christians? And by the way, Jewish Christians, Messianic Jews. Guess what he's going to do? He's going to take you all to heaven. right? You'll be sitting there, I'm hoping before the end of the class, and you're going to hear a sound of a trumpet. I believe that to be literal. We're going to be sitting here and we're all going to hear this really loud trumpet. We're going to go, huh? And then you're going to hear the wording in the original is a shout of command. It isn't going to be some word you're going to miss. It's going to be God make it very clear and he's going to say, come up here or something to that effect. And guess what you will do? You will meet him in the clouds. You'll do that. Now, it isn't going to be anything you're going to do. Don't worry about if you can't fly like some of us can. Right? I'm just saying. Some of us, got lots of flying time, you won't need it. I'm telling Gary we'll be able to do this. Amen. Amen. We will meet him in the clouds, and the time of the Gentiles will be complete. The time of the Gentiles, when that happens, the time of the Gentiles will be complete. So what's going to happen then? Well, Paul answers that. He says, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion, and he will move ungodliness from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Huh. Who's the Deliverer who will come from Zion? Who's that? Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is going to come as their deliverer, and he's going to remove all the ungodliness from Jacob, Israel. And he is going to have a covenant with them, and in that covenant, he's going to take away all their sins. And what would we call that covenant? The new covenant. Ezekiel says the same thing. Ezekiel 36, verse 25 then I will sprinkle clean water on you, he's talking about Israel, and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to do my judgments. There it is. That is a reiteration of the new covenant in the book of Ezekiel. That's what he's going to do to Israel. So why should Israel not fear? Well, because God is going to do a saving work in them. By the way, who did the saving work in you? Did you do it? Were you smart enough to figure that out? Who did the saving work in you? Oh, the deliverer who will come and he will remove your ungodliness and he will take away your sins and he's going to replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh and he's going to pour spirit out on you. Just like he will do to Israel. So we do not need to fear. Another reason we don't need to fear is this outpouring of grace. It's a clear reference to the new covenant when he talks about His amazing saving work with Israel. Israel will not need fear because ultimately God has promised to save them all. How many of you guys are familiar with the dry bones in Ezekiel 37? Right? What a cool passage. I was at a shepherds conference and Moeller preached on this passage. Man, it was one of the best sermons I ever heard. Mike? I'm not going to read the whole thing. Well, I probably will, but. (laughs) Ezekiel 37, starting with verse 1. The hand of Yahweh was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of Yahweh and caused me to rest in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he caused me to pass among them all around, and behold, they were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. Desiccated, dry, dry. White bones, no nothing on them like you find dinosaurs or whatever. And, he's, and by the way, how many bones are there? Very many. And they said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? Well, that's a, that's a funny question. There you go. And, and I'm going to be counseling with Ed because he needs help. Right? Yeah. But, but but here Ezekiel gives the correct answer because Ezekiel's kind of given one of those questions from God and he's like, uh... and I answered, oh, Lord, you know. Good answer, right? Uh, uh, you know, Lord. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says the Lord Yahweh to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, that you may come to life, and I will put sinews on you, and make flesh come upon you, and cover you with skin, put breath in you, so that you may come alive, and you will know that I am Yahweh. You need to understand that is what happened to you. Each one of you are described as these dry, desiccated bones, white, lifeless, dead bones. That is true of Israel today. Now, there's a remnant, right? There are Messianic Jews. You know what a Messianic Jew is? It's just a Jew who believes in Jesus of Messiah, like, in other words, a Christian. Like Peter was a Messianic Jew, okay? Paul was a Messianic Jew. Okay? So then, and then God says, look, I'm going to put flesh and bones and I'm going to put you all together. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise and behold, a rumbling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. Then I looked and behold, sinews were on them and flesh came upon them and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. You can, you, you can try and do all the works. You can try and do anything you want on your own. You can, you can try and put yourself together. You can try and do right things. Right? There's flesh on it, but it's still dead. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says Lord Yahweh, come from the four winds of breath and breathe on these who are killed so that they may come to life. Verse 10, So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life and stood on their feet an exceedingly great military force. And then he goes on to say, these bones are the whole house of Israel. What is the breath of God? It's the Holy Spirit. Dead people were filled with the Spirit and became alive. How does that happen? Read Titus 3.5, and you'll see how it happens. You are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. You know, that is just a, a, an amazing path. And But he says, he goes on to talk about, this is all Israel. See, one day, God is going to take all Israel, and he's going to bring the bones together, and he's going to do all that stuff we just read, and then he's going to breathe on it. And the Holy Spirit will fill them, and they will come alive, and they will be an exceedingly great army. All of Israel, numbers beyond comparison, will all be saved. They need not fear. They need not fear. And I would remind you, fellow chosen ones, you need not fear. God has already breathed on you, and you are now filled with the Spirit, and you have life. The second point he makes is this, there is no one like God. God is going to reiterate who he is once again to demonstrate to Israel how foolish they are to give themselves or trust in anything but him. He is Yahweh, he's their king, their God, their redeemer, and their savior. By the way, Yahweh is your king, your God, your redeemer, and your savior. When you read this stuff, don't just think about Israel. Apply this to yourself. By the way, you are His chosen ones, every one of you. Let me read verses 6 through 8. Thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Who is like me Let him call out and declare it. Let him tell it to me in order. From the time that I established the ancient people and let them declare to them the things that are to come and the events that are going to take place, do not be in dread and do not be afraid. Have I not long since caused it to be heard to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? Is there any other rock? I know of none. By the way, when he says rock, metaphorically, earlier we talked about the fact What we introduced the book with the um, rules of hermeneutics, when we see rock used metaphorically, who does it always refer to? If you have an LSB, you'll notice it's capitalized. Why? Because the rock is Jesus. This is a Trinitarian thing going on. He's talking about Jesus here. He's talking about the Trinity. Is there a God besides me? I know of any other rock. I know of none. Is there anybody like Jesus? I know of none. Who is like me? He said this several times before. But Israel needs to hear it again. You need to hear it again. First of all, there is no redeemer like Yahweh. Isaiah 6, let me read to you, just as a reminder, Isaiah 6, starting in verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, with the train of his robe filling the temple, Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's who we're talking about. God has been making clear who he is since the very beginning of this book. He is the Holy One of Israel Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. And we see here he's also talking about Jesus. Right? Jesus is the rock. He uses the phrase, I am the first and the last. Have we ever heard Jesus say that? Turn to the book of Revelation. I am the first and the last, the one who is, the one who will come. That's Jesus' declaration of his divinity It's Jesus' declaration, I am Yahweh. Go back to the burning bush. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus said that in John 8. By the way, the Jews didn't like when he did. He will redeem Israel. Remember in chapter 41, we read this in verse 14. Do not fear, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel, I will help you, declares Yahweh, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. We've heard that phrase, Holy One of Israel, now about ten times. I'm not sure how many exactly. Let me read you from uh, Luke 24. Jesus is talking, and it says in verse 20, But they were all hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel, that Jesus would. They were hoping that, by the way, he will. Keep reading. Indeed, beside all this, it was the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us astounded us, and they were at the tomb early in the morning. And not finding his body, they came saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said to them, he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it as exactly as a woman also said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, Jesus is speaking, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the things that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. Luke is talking about the the encounter with the guys on the road to Emmaus. And they recount to this stranger all the things that happened. And Jesus says, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe. Right? He is Yahweh. He is the first and the last. And I believe he took them to Isaiah 43. He took them to Isaiah 44. He took them to Isaiah 6. He took them to Isaiah 53. He took him to Deuteronomy and he showed all these things that Yahweh and Christ are the same. So do not be afraid. Now I don't know what's going to happen to Israel. I don't know what's going to happen in the United States. I am not a prophet. I don't know what's going to happen to the economy. There are those who are saying next year it's going to collapse. Maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen in Ukraine. I don't know any of that stuff. But I do know that... And by the way, I don't know what's going to happen in your life. I don't know if you're going to get cancer. I don't know if you're going to get a heart attack. I don't know if you're going to be found to have some weird disease. I don't know that. I don't know if you're going to get hit by a car. I don't know if you're going to lose your spouse. Right? I don't know if you're going to lose your job. I don't know any of that stuff. But here's what I know that God reminds Israel of his faithfulness and in fulfilling all of the prophetic statements. They know him to be faithful, so why be afraid? God says this to Israel in Deuteronomy 31. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or be in dread of them, for Yahweh is your God and is the one who goes with you, and he will not fail or forsake you. Don't be afraid because you have Yahweh with you. Jesus said this in Matthew 10 Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Who would that be? That'd be Christ himself. That'd be Yahweh. Don't fear men, period. The worst they can do to you is kill you. And what does that yield? You see Jesus face to face. Let me just remind you in Matthew 28, starting in verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. Now we're all familiar with that. That's called the Great Commission, right? We usually stop there when we preach that passage. But I want you to note the end. And behold, and pay attention to this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the church. He's talking to the disciples. I am with you always. Yahweh was with Israel. And he said, don't be afraid, be strong and courageous. And Jesus says, I am with you. Don't be afraid, be strong and courageous. Whoa. Okay, next week, we're going to look at the folly of idols. Okay? And this, this is one of my favorite passages in the book. Because God is going to get sarcastic with Israel, right? He's going to get sarcastic with them. He's going to say, yeah, you make your idol, you use some of the wood to cook your meat, and then the rest of it you bow down to and call it God. And he talks about all different ways to make idols. He's being sarcastic. Then he says, yeah, do you think any of those are going to deliver you? Why didn't you use the wood you just cooked your meat with instead? Uh, it's almost funny. So he's going to talk about that starting next week. And um, that's where we'll pick it up. And we will finish with that. Are there? Now we've been talking about a lot of stuff. Are there any questions you have how this all fits together? Right? I mean, we've been looking at Ezekiel, Hosea, We've been looking at Zephaniah, we've been looking at Revelations, we've been looking in the Gospels, we've been looking in the Epistles. And we're seeing the same thing everywhere we go, right? Are you noticing that? Are you noticing that God is saying the same thing in the Old Testament, the New Testament, in all the books in the Old Testament, and all the books in the New Testament? It's very consistent. The message is the same. I want. I hope you see that. That's why, by the way, You know, sometimes I think I I bring in too many of these verses. But I do that on purpose. Because I want you to see the harmony of all this. I'm not just picking one verse out of nowhere and making a theology around it. Right? It's in the whole Bible. Okay, any questions on anything? Really? Yes, ma'am. Go ahead. It does. You are exactly correct. The temple will be rebuilt exactly where it was. And you're asking, wait a minute, wait a minute, there's some Muslim thing there. The Dome of the Rock or something? And if Israel were to tear that down now, oh, you think they're mad now. (laughs) But by the middle of the tribulation, it will be rebuilt. And it says in the book of Revel, in, in the book of Daniel, chapter nine, that Israel, the beginning of the tribulation. If you got your tribulation stopwatch, you want to know the moment it starts. It starts when Antichrist signs a, covenant, signs a covenant with Israel. The moment that that guy picks up his pen, click your, revela- your tribulation watch, and you can watch seven years, and you'll know when Christ comes back. But I believe it will be rebuilt in the first half of the tribulation. And before the end of the first half of the tribulation, it will be working. Cindy, you had a question. What? Uh, uh, What about it? No, that's not what he's talking about. He's ta- Remember I said you were those dry bones. He's talking about the nation of Israel. Those bones are a metaphoric example of all unbelievers, including Israel. So in a sense, although he's talking about Israel in that passage, that was you. You were dry, desiccated bones. You were dead, right? But God made you alive. You are a new creature. 2 Corinthians 5.17, right? You are a new creature. God took those dry, desiccated Cindy bones, and he brought them together, and he put sinews and skin on it, you were still dead, and then he breathed his spirit on you. And now you're alive. So that's what he's talking about. He's not saying he's gonna take dead unbelieving Jews and make them believing. He's saying that all those living Jews at that time, every last one of them, the same thing we read in Revel I'm sorry, Romans eleven, he's gonna take Israel and he's gonna make them new creatures, and he's gonna breathe his spirit on them, and he's gonna pour out the new covenant, and they will be a very great army, is what it says. Okay? Good question. Any other questions? Isn't anybody going to ask me when's this all going to happen exactly? Good, because my answer would be I have no idea, but soon. I would now. Now here's the thing. Jesus says you will not know the day or the hour. He says that. So anybody who tells you he knows the day or the hour, you know, is a heretic. Don't listen. Because Jesus said, by the way, I don't know. So I'm thinking, you ain't smarter than Jesus. But he does tell his disciples to look at the signs and know the season and know it's about to come. It is not wrong to look around at the signs, and he gives us many of them. And he says, you know, like a guy who looks in the sky and it turns red, you know what that means means rain's coming, or you look at the fig tree and the figs are getting ripe. You know what that means? How can you not know the signs? He chides them, and he tells them, pay attention to the signs. Now, you won't know the day or the hour, but you know the season. And I will tell you, I believe we're in the season. All right? I really do. Yes, ma'am? That is correct. The rapture could happen now okay could happen before you get to the sanctuary nothing more has to happen okay all right let's pray father we do thank you for the clarity of your word and lord i pray as we again hear you declare your majesty we hear you declare your authority your sovereignty your grace Lord, you are the Holy One of Israel. You are the Holy One of your church. Lord, let us bow down in humble adoration before you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.